Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have looked forward with great expectation to being here, and uh, I can only tell you that my hearing of this church and of this community was one thing. My seeing is more than a fulfillment of what I had heard. Uh, you have a goodwill ambassador in Dan Dumas who has spoken so much about this church and about this community and about so many of you. And uh, I just want to tell you what a sheer delight it is to be here in Kingsburg and uh, to be here with you in this church. And to Pastor Scott, I just want to tell you thank you for having me here. And it's a, it's a great, great honor to be here. It's an honor whenever we get to turn to the Word of God. It's, it is the world-defying act of knowing that when we open the Scripture, the one true and living God is speaking. And just given what we have already experienced in this service of worship, precious and, and just even so unexpected when you consider the last Lord's Day until now, what is on your heart, what is on your mind you didn't know to think about in the last week? I want to quote the great reformer Martin Luther who said, there are moments in which you sing songs as unto the Lord. There are moments when you read scripture as unto the Lord. And then there are moments when you sing the great hymns of the faith and you read the text of the word of God in order to hurl them at the devil. And there's a sense in which we need to do both of those things today. For he has no victory. Christ alone has the victory. I want you to turn with me to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. We begin reading in verse 13. A text that no doubt is familiar to you. A text the Lord laid on my heart before I came to be with you about this time when I would preach and a text I believe the Holy Spirit had directed my attention to in order, in order that it would be the right word, I have to have confidence for this service because he led me to this text as he led me here. Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word, thankful for every word of your word, thankful in this particular day for this text. And Father, we believe it is this portion that you have for us this day. May we receive all that you would have for us in these words of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. 
Matthew chapter 16 is one of those passages that most Christians recognize. It has the ring of the familiar because we go back to it so often. It is, in many ways, what we might call the Constitution or the Magna Carta of the church. And one of the things that evangelicals in, in this generation are, are tragically marked by is, in so many ways, an underappreciation for the radical nature of the church. Sometimes we speak of the church in general. Sometimes we speak of our local church in, in ways that don't come even close to the faithfulness of what the biblical understanding of the church, what it really is and how it's revealed to us. There are those around us who think that the church is just a voluntary association made up of people who like Jesus. It's, uh, it's like any other organization in the community, this club or that club, this association or, or that institution, and it just happens to be one that's committed to Christ. That's not what the church is in the New Testament. There are those who look to the church and say, well, that, that's a community, that's a fellowship. They are, they're, they're folks who are, uh, are like an extended family to one another. And there's a sense in which, of course, that's true. Indeed, it's truer than true. But this doesn't start out as something like an extended family, a fellowship. It's, it, it's not a community gathering place. It is the body of Christ. It, it's not a voluntary association. It is an outpost of eternity in this fallen world. Every other organization, every other institution, every other entity that we look at with our human eyes in this age will pass away. All that will remain is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the very text that makes that clear. And we need to understand that one of the radical realizations we need from this text is the fact that the disciples were not expecting this. When we think about the church, we think, well, that's the natural, that's the natural jump from the work of Christ in terms of redemption. He was redeeming a people. Those people are the church. But we're looking backwards at this. We, we tend to forget what it must have been like to be one of the disciples. And by the way, here's another key to our understanding of the New Testament, something we often don't think about. Because I can remember as a teenager reading through the scripture thinking, I wish I had been amongst the disciples. Had I been amongst the disciples, then I would have had the opportunity to hear Jesus in person. And I still believe that it would have been unspeakably, infinitely precious, uh, blessed to have been in the presence of the Lord, to, in, to hear him say these things for the very first time. But there's a sense in which even as the disciples had the advantage of being with Jesus in his earthly ministry, we have an advantage the disciples did not have. We have the New Testament. We have the Bible that they did not have. And so we can open the Gospel of Matthew and, and we can read this story of Jesus in its entirety. They did not know that story in its entirety. They did not know many of the things that by the, the authority of Scripture we know they had to learn them as Jesus taught them, and as he revealed himself to them day by day. That's why we arrive at this passage, Matthew chapter 16. It begins in verse 13 with telling us where Jesus and his disciples were. Now remember, nothing in the scripture is extra. Nothing's extraneous. Every single word is inspired. Every single word is important. When Matthew tells us where this takes place, it's not a travel log. It has some importance. 
We are told that Jesus and his disciples came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I would guess that very few of us are shocked by that. We, we've, we've heard the text. It, it, it just makes sense. It's like Jesus came into this community or that community. No, this is a rather radical statement. This is something that would have shocked the people who in the first century would have been reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time. Why? It is because Jewish folks didn't go into the region of Caesarea Philippi. The first clue about that is that the name of the region is Caesarea Philippi. It is named for Caesar. It is the most Roman-intensive area of all of what we would now call the Holy Land. It was a city that was on the coast that was dedicated to the honor of Caesar himself who claimed to be God and it was an enormous outpost of the Roman army and of Roman influence and as the Roman army was oppressing the Jewish people and as Caesar was was claiming in an idolatrous way even to be God, Caesarea Philippi is where the Jews would have Well, they would have avoided it at all costs under normal circumstances. Jesus takes his disciples into the region of Caesarea Philippi. You might ask the question, I would, why is Jesus taking them into this region where Jews usually would not go? It is because he wants to be where those who might recognize him will not be. Anywhere in Judea where Jesus teaches, there emerges a huge crowd. In Galilee, where Jesus teaches, the the crowds grow so large that as we have in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus looking at the crowd that was so massive, just to be able to get the distance to be able to speak to them, he had to get into a boat and go offshore. This is not a sermon preached to thousands. This isn't a conversation Jesus intends to be overheard by dozens. Jesus takes his disciples into an area where they are likely to remain alone and not to be surrounded by hangers-on. He wants a private conversation with his disciples, and he has a major question he intends to ask them. He asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, routinely in the national media, you will see stories about Jesus and The national news magazines, and there are fewer of them now than there once were, but the national news magazines, especially over the last 20 or 25 years, about every Christmas, about every Easter, would have a cover story on who is Jesus. And uh, they would try to come up with some new angle, and, and they would go find the most liberal Bible scholars they could find, the most liberal theologians, and say, who do you think Jesus is? And then they, they'd, out of a sense of journalistic responsibility, go to go to a, a conservative evangelical. I often ended up getting those calls, and talking with the Newsweek and Time about these matters. And, and so they would try to say, okay, let's just take a, a Time magazine, Newsweek magazine, journalistic, objective understanding of who Jesus is, and they would end up talking to people who believe that Jesus was just a great spiritual teacher, and, and then they would end up talking to those of us who said Jesus is nothing less than God in human flesh. But here in the region of Caesarea Philippi, it's Jesus who asked the questions concerning himself. And he isn't asking them of the general public. He isn't asking them of the people who are living in Caesarea Philippi. He asked the question of his own disciples. And, and the question is, who do they say, is the King James translation, who, who do the people say that I am? And the, the answers coming from the disciples are fascinating. As you see in verse 14, and they said, we're not told which disciples said what. 
Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And you look at that and go, well, what confusion. Well, let me ask you the question. In Kingsburg, if you were just to go out onto the street corner, if you were just to, to imagine meeting people in the, in the market or just, to, just even to talk to some of your neighbors and you were to ask them, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say Jesus is? What answers would you expect to receive back? It's usually a perfect mix of confusion. It, it, it's usually a bit of this and a bit of that. Some, of the, some people will, will come close, uh, they'll, they'll come tantalizingly close to saying that he's the very son of God. He was God in human flesh, but, but generally only close. And, and far more common is the absolute confusion to say, well, he's a, he's a great teacher. I think he was a prophet. I, I, uh, I think he, he had, uh, he had uh, lived a life that we ought to emulate. Very few people in America will say anything mean-spirited about Jesus. That breaks the social etiquette. Jesus here asks his disciples, who, who do they say that I am? And, and the answers make more sense as the disciples answered than may first appear to us. When they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets, many of us would shake our heads and say, how in the world could that be possible? How, how could there be that kind of confusion? I mean, John the Baptist and Jesus, they're two different people. John the Baptist is older. John the Baptist is, he, he's dressed differently according to the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness near Judea, and uh, Jesus has been up in Galilee and is now in the region of Caesarea Philippi. How in the world could it be John the Baptist? But if you were living in the first century, and given the communication that was available in the first century, if you heard about John the Baptist who was baptizing in the name of the Lord, and if you heard about John the Baptist who was preaching a message of repentance from sin, and, and then you heard Jesus preach, you might think that's the same message. Perhaps this is the same man. More odd to us is the reference to Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets, because we know that the Jewish people did not believe in reincarnation. Jeremiah was centuries old. Elijah, centuries old. How in the world could Jesus possibly be Elijah or Jeremiah? They do not mean, and we need to read this very carefully, they don't mean Elijah or Jeremiah reincarnated like some kind of Eastern vision. They're, this is not Shirley MacLaine believing that she was reincarnated as seven previous people. That is not what's going on here. Rather, there is in the Old Testament itself the promise that no true prophet's prophecy will ever lay fallow and empty. It is Moses himself in the book of Deuteronomy who prophesies in the Lord that there will be one who will come, who will take up his place, his own prophetic place. And the same thing is true of Elijah and Jeremiah. It doesn't mean that Elijah in the flesh would be back or Jeremiah in the flesh would be back. It would mean that a prophet would arise who would take up the prophetic mantle that God had put upon Elijah and God had put upon Jeremiah and he would fulfill that prophetic ministry in a new generation. And by the way, there is a sense in which that is exactly what Jesus is doing. But it was John the Baptist who was the one who took up the mantle of Elijah. The scripture makes clear it was John the Baptist who came to prepare the way of the Lord as having taken up that prophetic mantle of Elijah. Perhaps when people heard Jesus speaking of the need for repentance and Jesus talking about the promise of a new heart, it sounded like Jeremiah and they thought this may be the one who's taking up Jeremiah's prophetic mantle. Or, or then they just said, or one of the prophets. 
But the answer to the next question is far more important because Jesus then turns from asking, who do they say that I am, to asking, who do you say that I am? I want us to concentrate on three marks of the church found in this passage. These three marks are essential to any church that is a true church. Any church that bears these three marks is indeed a church. Any church that lacks any of these three marks is not a church, no matter what it may call itself. And the first of these marks is truth. Jesus turns to his disciples and asks the more pressing question. Not just who do they say that I am, but now he says, who do you say that I am? And who in the world is going to answer that question? It's one thing to be asked the kind of objective, journalistic question. What are you hearing? What are they saying? Who do they say that I am? It's quite different for Jesus to turn to the 12 and say, all right, boys, but who do you say that I am? Now, keep in mind that thus far, in terms of the unfolding of the Gospels, the reality is that the divine nature of Christ, the fact that he is the very Son of God, the, the truth about God in Christ that we know and is at the center of our faith, who knows that at this point in the, in the chronology of the earthly ministry of Jesus? Who knows that? Well, there are some shepherds in Bethlehem who heard that because an angelic host appeared to them on the night that Jesus was born and said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are three words there, Savior, Christ, Messiah, Lord. They're all put together. That was not something the shepherds came up with. It was announced to them, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There were some shepherds who heard this. Who else in the Gospels knows that Jesus is the Son of God? At this point, it is some shepherds and some demons. Because the demons know who Jesus is. When Jesus appears and casts them out, they say, we know who you are. But these disciples are neither shepherds nor demons. Jesus turns to them and says, well, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who answers, Simon Peter. Anyone who's taught for any length of time, anyone who's been in a classroom, especially a classroom full of kids, let's say middle school kids, knows Peter. He is the eagerest of eager beavers. He is the kid who has his hand up before the question is finished. And Peter, being the eagerest of eager beavers, is often gloriously right. But sometimes Peter is horrifyingly wrong. But at least at two points in the Gospels, it is Peter who is so right. He defines what it means to be a Christian because he confesses what it means for Christ to be Christ. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, we read that as if, well, of course he is. We know that he is. But you need to recognize that Jesus had never said to his disciples, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the crowds that were gathered around Jesus, whether in Judea or in Galilee, were not saying, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
They weren't saying this is the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. This is the very son of God. They were saying, we don't know who he is. They were calling him rabbi. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, when in a succession of miracles, Jesus showed the power of God, there were those who began to question, could this be the Messiah? They were saying, could this be David's son? But Jesus didn't say, odd that you should ask that question. Instead, he withdrew with his disciples, and he withdrew to ask them the question. The first mark of the church is truth. Where you find truth, you find the church. And it's not just truth in general. It is, first of all, the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You're the promised one of Israel. You are the consolation of Israel. You are the one that God has promised, the the great rescuer of his people. You are the Christ. You are the king who is going to rule on David's throne. Now, this is being said in Caesarea Philippi, and here is Jesus with his his 12 disciples. There are 13 people in Roman-occupied territory, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're going to reign on David's throne. Obviously. You have to realize just how radical this is. They're in a town named for Caesar. And Peter says, oh, you're the king. Not only the king, you're, you're the king who's going to rule on David's throne. And not only that, he doesn't stop. He says, you are the son of the living God. The son of the living God. What in the world is Peter saying? He is saying, you are God in human flesh. God sent you, not just as a prophet, not just as Jeremiah or Elijah, God sent you as you are his son in human flesh. You are David's king, God's son. Period. Now, Peter has articulated what every single Christian must believe about Christ. No one who fails to believe this is a Christian. No one who fails to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is a Christian. There are people out there who believe something about Jesus. It's hard to find people, even in this secularizing society, who will say mean-spirited things about Jesus. Instead, they say woefully insufficient things about Jesus. What Peter said is not in any way insufficient. It's absolutely right. This is exactly who Jesus is. And notice how Jesus responds. He says, unto Simon Peter, blessed are you. Oh my goodness, those words, how they must have been heard by Peter. After after he declared what was so radical, it was beyond the understanding that they would ever say these words. When he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. And then notice these words, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. When you're puzzled by the confusion about Jesus out in the the larger society, when when you encounter friends and neighbors or or, or just even people in the community, or you listen to the, the cultural chatter and you listen to the media and you hear so much nonsense about Jesus, you should not be surprised. Because the truth about Jesus is not a truth that people get to on their own, ever. No one is going to, by intuition or, or by some kind of, uh, 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 of intelligence of their own, get to the knowledge of who Jesus is. Peter was not wise enough to know that Jesus is 
the Christ, the Son of the living God, it was revealed to him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The truth that establishes the very foundation of the church is not a truth we have discovered. It's not a truth that we have somehow deciphered. It's not a truth that we have somehow decided to agree upon. It's a truth that has been revealed to us by the Father. That's the foundation of the church, revealed truth. That's why when you get into the pulpit, when the the preacher gets into the pulpit of a true church and is about the task of true preaching, he is saying, flesh and blood has not revealed this to us, but our Father who is in heaven. And when the book is open, we're saying, flesh and blood did not reveal these words, but our Father who is in heaven. We're going to declare every single word of this scripture because not one of it came merely from man, but every single word, as the Apostle Paul will tell Timothy, is inspired and breathed out by God. Where you find the truth, all of the truth in scripture affirm, you find a church. When in the Reformation, the reformers had to say on the pain of death because they were desperate to know where's the true church, where's the false church. They said the true church is known by its first mark and that is that the word of God is rightly preached. Where you find the word of God rightly preached, you may find even some disorganization. You might find, uh, you might find that it's a little band that looks like it's been chased over into a persecuted corner, but you're going to find the true church. Over here, you may find a church that says it's a church. They may have a great building. They may have a wonderful organization. They may have a huge budget. They may have a lot of cultural influence, but if they do not stand upon the entirety of the revealed truth of God, and if the word of God is not rightly preached, they are no church. We need to understand that in our times, it is this first mark of the church that is often the most denied, the most openly despised. A dividing line has come at many points in the church. It came in the early church between orthodoxy and heresy. It it, it came down to the question of who Jesus is at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It it, it came down to what the gospel is when the Pelagian controversy arose. It, it, It came down to so many questions about whether or not the Trinity is a necessary doctrine. It it came down to the question in the Reformation as to what the gospel really is. are, Are we justified by faith and or are we justified by faith alone? Do we believe that the truth of God is found in in Scripture, or do we need Scripture and an authoritative papacy in a teaching ministry of the church? And the Reformers said, where the Word of God is rightly preached, there is a church. Where the Word of God is not rightly preached, there is no church at all. And the church that receives the right preaching of the Word of God receives it with joy and believes it and confesses it like Peter. The first mark of the church is truth. The second mark of the church is power. Jesus answered him in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, when I was a a boy, there was a choral anthem that declared this great truth, the gates of hell shall not prevail. And and I I can remember hearing it. I read it so many times in scripture and I, I heard Jesus say these words, upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, the first thing we need to face, by the way, is the fact that the rock, the, the, the rock to which Jesus refers here is not Peter, the man. Because it turns out Peter, the man is not much of a rock. 
The evidence of that comes just a few verses later. As you look at verses 21 and following, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's rebuking Christ. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. That's not a rock. No, the rock is the confession of Christ. Jesus establishes his church upon the truth of who he is. It is his church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The church is is the body of the redeemed for whom he has died and whom he has chosen unto himself. And it is his church. It is, as the Apostle Paul will say, his own personal possession. As Peter will write in his letters in the New Testament, we, we belong to him as a possession unto him. But this issue of power is one that is so often neglected. I heard that choral anthem, the gates of hell shall not prevail. And it it seemed like what was being sung and what was being implied is that we're going to keep gaining ground. The, 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 The power of the church is such is that in our society, in this generation, we're going to be gaining ground and gaining ground and gaining ground. We're going to be gaining territory. We're going to be sending missionaries and they're going to be converting peoples and nations not yet reached with peoples who never heard the gospel. And, and in our own country, we're going to be gaining ground in terms of evangelism and gaining ground in terms of influence. Why? Because the gates of hell shall not prevail. But that is not what that phrase means. Right now, in certain areas of the world, the group known as the Islamic State or ISIS is beheading Christians. And the very real possibility is that there will be no Christians left in much of the Middle East. And it's not just the Islamic State. It's just a pervasive, pervasive attempt to eradicate Christianity. And when we're talking about Christianity there, we're not even sure exactly what some of those churches believe. But we do know that they claim the name of Christ. And just simply claiming the name of Christ means that many of them are paying with their lives. But insofar as they belong to Christ, the gates of hell shall not prevail. And and so you may see Christians or Christianity or Christian churches even persecuted to the point of seemingly disappearing in regions and, and at least for some generations, but the gates of hell still shall not prevail. And the question is, what in the world does that mean? We read about the gates of hell and we read it as if we know automatically what it means. But when we look to the passage and we look to that conversation, that kind of imagery in first century Judaism, it refers to the power to defy death. The gates of hell, the gates of Hades, are the gates that separate life and death. There is no question, given the use of the word Hades that's translated here, what is referred to is the power to defy death. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. You know, every single Lord's Day, the church in preaching the gospel makes that declaration, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Even when we read the headlines and we see such horrifying events worldwide, we say the gates of hell shall not prevail. Even when we stand at the, 
at the graveside ceremony for a loved one who died in Christ were able to look at the ground and say, the gates of hell shall not prevail. In, in a week like this, where your community has lost so much and every single mind and heart in this community is aware of that reality of death in a shocking way. For those who are in Christ, the declaration is very straightforward and simple. And it doesn't come from some Christian theologian at some point in Christian history. It comes from Jesus himself, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then our sins are still on us and we are of all people most to be pitied. But he said, if Christ is raised from the dead, as Christ has raised from the dead, been raised from the dead, then indeed he is the first fruits of those who will follow him such that all those who come to Christ by faith will not only be redeemed by him, we will be raised by him. And that's the great truth when we say the gates of hell shall not prevail. If our faith was for this life only, we would be of all people most to be pitied because we're fooling ourselves. We're talking about an eternity that's not going to happen. We're talking about a heaven that we're never going to know. We're talking about a state of eternal blessedness with God. We're talking about a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And the apostle Paul makes it very clear. If those things aren't real, then we're fools. But Jesus himself said the gates of hell shall not prevail. That, by the way, is the right power of the church. At so many points in Christian history, the church has sought the wrong kind of power and has lamented the loss of the wrong kind of power. There are times when we want political power, we want cultural power, we want economic power, we want the power of esteem, we want the power of, of being well thought by all of our neighbors, we want, the, we want the power of being seen as the coming thing, not the going thing, but we're living in a society that's not giving us any of those things, but it is no less true that the gates of hell shall not prevail. The power of the church is a spiritual power. It is the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the power of the preaching of the word of God. It is the power of the Holy Spirit infused church, the gates of hell shall not prevail we are the only people alive who can die safely and the church is the only body on earth that will continue through eternity there's not going to be an elks club there's not going to be a rotary club there's not going to be a pta meeting there's not going to be united states congress there's not going to be a United Nations, for that we can be thankful. There's not going to be all kinds of things that we see as the coming power and the, and the great political, the great powers on earth. All of them are going to disappear. But the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Where there's a little band of believers hidden away under persecution in communist China, where, where there is a band of believers that is standing bravely just because they love Christ in a culture that's turning hostile to them, where, where, where there's a congregation, big or small, where there are people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, where there are those who band together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, where there are those who articulate what it means for Christ to be Indeed, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the gates of hell shall not prevail. That's the only power the church is given. That's all the power the church needs. The third mark is authority. First mark is truth. The second is power. The third is authority. And this is the one that is most neglected. 
I will give you, Christ says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. First mark is truth, the truth first and most centrally of who Christ is. The second mark is power, a power to defy death. Even the gates of hell shall not prevail. And the third word, the third mark of the church is authority. And that authority is demonstrated in the keys of the kingdom. There's a little historical background here that's really, really important. The church throughout its history has always believed in the power of the keys. The question is, who's holding the keys of the kingdom? Those who believe that the church was established upon Peter rather than the truth Peter confessed often believe and teach that it is Peter who holds the keys. And they teach that there has been an unbroken succession of those they would call bishops in the line of Peter until the present and that it is that bishop who holds the keys. So if you look at the at the symbolism of the papacy, you'll see keys. If you look at stained glass windows in many churches, that the churches who believe that Peter was the first of these bishops, you will see Peter, and it's Peter in the stained glass windows who is holding keys. But Christ did not give the keys to Peter. He gave the keys to the church. Upon this rock, I will build my church and I will give you the keys. This is the church against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What would it mean for the church to have the keys of the kingdom of heaven? What will we do with these keys? What are these keys? What's the, what's the authority, the power of these keys? Why are they important? Well, the next words make that very clear. Many evangelical Christians never look closely at what these keys represent. Look exactly what Jesus himself said to his church. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. It's a, it's a complex grammar here. It, it doesn't mean that when we bind it here, it's then subsequently bound in heaven. It means that if we bind it here, it's already bound in heaven. And if we loose here, it shall have been loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing. That, that, that's a, that, that's a, a vocabulary we don't use very much, but we're doing it all the time. In order to understand that, you have to go back into first century Judaism. And you have to understand they didn't have a small claims court. They, they, they had rabbis who sat at the gates of the city. And every day, if you had a question, you had a legal dispute, you would go to the rabbis and, and you would ask them to settle the dispute. And you see this even in the Gospels, where when people mistake Jesus for a rabbi, they come up to him and try to get him to settle their disputes. One man who comes up with a property dispute with his brothers, and he says, would you, rabbi, settle this for us? And he says, that's not my business. Well, the man can be forgiven for assuming that if Jesus was a rabbi, that was his business. And how did they adjudicate? How did they make these decisions? They sat with the Torah, with the first five books of the Bible. They sat with the Bible on their laps, and they sat at the gates of the city, and someone would come. And for instance, marriages could only take place if the rabbis at the gates of the city authorized the marriage. 
The question was, is the marriage lawful? Does this man have a right to take this woman as his bride? The rabbis would have to, to say he's loosed to do that. The binding and loosing means they would read the Bible, and if the Bible says you must do something or must not do something, then they would say you are bound by the word. You are bound by the law. You must do what the law commands. You must not do what the, Lord, what the law forbids. So if a man came up and he, he, he couldn't lawfully marry the woman, they would say, you're bound not to marry her. But if, if he had a lawful claim upon this woman, and if they were lawfully able to get married, then they would say, you are loosed. Go and marry this woman. You are loosed. But how do they decide? Was it on their wisdom? No, it was by consulting the word of God. Now, in one sense, what we're looking at here is what we would call church discipline as one of the essential marks of the church's authority. It's the church that decides on the basis of the word of God where we are together bound and where we are together loose. And it's also the church to which true Christians should come in the true fellowship of a true gospel, true Bible-believing church and say, if I have a problem, if I have a deep question, if I have a moral conflict, if I'm not sure what to do, I turn to the church. I turn to the elders of the church and I say, Am I bound or am I loosed? Now see, Jesus' understanding of his church as revealed here in Matthew chapter 16 is not of a voluntary association of people who think nice thoughts about himself. It is a blood-bought fellowship of a new covenant people who are bound together under the lordship of Christ and in fellowship with one another under the authority of the word of God to receive all that binds us and together to be loose to all that the Bible liberates us as we're bound to each other, bound commonly to Christ. One of the tragedies is that you can go from community to community and church building to church building and you can find churches that have this mark, not so much that mark, not that mark at all. There is a priority here. The priority comes that the first mark is truth. If you don't have the mark of truth, none of the others will follow. If you don't know who Jesus is, then there will be no church, no matter how religious or even how Christian-ish the church may look. The first mark is truth. If the church is marked, first of all, by its confession of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, Messiah, Son of the living God, and if then, on the basis of that confession, all of God's truth is revealed in Scripture is affirmed, then you'll find a church. And you'll find a church that exists in power because against that church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. But if that church is rightly ordered, you'll also find the keys. And the keys aren't being held by your pastor. The keys aren't just held by the elders of the church. They're being held by the church as the church coming at it together says, we are bound by the word of God. There are officers in the church who have a responsibility on behalf of the whole church, first of all, to teach and then also to rule in the right way on behalf of the church to exercise a gospel ministry, to, to bind and to loose on the authority of the word of God. But it's a responsibility. It's a mark that's given to the whole church. So measured by what Christ has revealed and Matthew chapter 16, how many churches do we have in the United States of America? Fewer than the yellow pages would suggest. How healthy is the church in North America 
Well, you get the latest research and they'll tell us that church attendance is going down and in a radically secularizing culture where, quite frankly, we're going to find ourselves the moral outlaws in this society in very short order. Well, we're seeing the evaporation of cultural Christianity and we're seeing nominal Christianity pass away. What's our response to that? The gates of hell shall not prevail. What's our response to that? Wherever the church is found is confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, the Son of the living God. What's our response to that? Where you find a church, you find a church eager to share that gospel, knowing that the only way people are going to hear the gospel and are going to know the truth about Jesus is if the believing church preaches, teaches, takes, and tells the gospel. And we do so understanding that the power of the Holy Spirit is with us so that we can preach that gospel knowing that whoever believes will be saved. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. And thus we can look the grave squarely in the face for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and say, as the Apostle Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As he was raised, so shall we also be. We can look to the book of Revelation, which promises that for those who are in Christ, on that day, every eye is dry and every tear is wiped away. We understand that the church, where it's found, is the church exercising the keys of the kingdom, which is, first of all, the right preaching of the word of God, and that right preaching of the word of God rightly applied. To the lives of believers. You know, in a week like this, my hope and prayer for you is that the gospel appears even more infinitely precious because it's all we've got and it's all we need. I hope that the hope of the gospel seems fresher than ever before because when, when faced with the reality of death, we all of a sudden recognize this is exactly what's at stake. And I hope and pray that you understand what it means to know that even as the gates of hell shall not prevail, until Jesus comes, we will face many dangers, toils, and snares, as the gospel song goes, and it's all right. And I hope you remember that last prayer of the Bible, which is the prayer of the true church believing all these things, even so, Lord, come quickly.